It is a mentality that shuns excuses and focuses on what's at stake. A mindset that resolves within itself that you must totally empty yourself to experience victory. A memory that remembers that who and what you are playing for is bigger than you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the third episode of the Fourth Quarter Christianity Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Webster, and I'm so thankful that you took the opportunity to tune in to today's episode. Today, we have a very special guest, a man that I'm privileged to work alongside at Bellevue Church of Christ. He serves as one of the elders, and he's a very, very knowledgeable man, and I'm so thankful that he took the time to share his practical knowledge dealing with the, uh, with the issue of alcohol addiction. Maybe you're someone who struggles with alcohol or you know someone who struggles with alcohol. Stay tuned to the video and be sure to share that video with a friend. If you haven't already, please go ahead and subscribe to the podcast. Be sure to leave a review as that will help with the exposure of this podcast. Again, guys, I'm so thankful that you have uh, supported us thus far and please continue to support the podcast. And please, please, please remind people that we are putting out practical stories to help us with practical living. So, hey, Lee, thanks for accepting the invitation to be on the podcast today. Um, I'm really excited to have you on the show. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Doing good. Thanks for having me. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um, so, as you know, uh, we have a, uh, a very prevalent issue at hand, um, a, a topic of, of discussion that I think will be of benefit not only to uh, myself, but also to those um, who will um, listen in to this particular episode. And so before we begin, before we dive into that, um, just want to give you um, a brief moment to just introduce yourself uh, so the, uh, the listeners can have a better idea of who you are. My name is uh, Lee Wilson. I'm uh, currently one of the elders at uh, Bellevue Church of Christ. Uh, I am uh, 58 years old, served 20 years in the United States Air Force, uh, currently work for uh, a defense contractor by the name of General Dynamics. Um, I grew up in, uh, was born in Washington, grew up in Kentucky, happily married, four children, 14 grandchildren, just good life now. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Yeah, I've heard, uh, I've been privileged to hear some of those stories and uh, looking forward to, to hearing, hearing them again uh, tonight as we uh, continue with the episode. So um, before we begin, I just want to essentially uh, give the background as to why I titled this episode "Changed the Mo uh, Changing the Momentum. So if you're familiar with, with sports, you know that this phrase is often used in sports. And in the sports world, uh, this phrase essentially means to gain the upper hand or to uh, take control of a situation or to uh, essentially conquer the challenge that you're facing. OK. And so a person um, in my mind who has dealt with a less ideal, uh, less than ideal life, uh, maybe because of self-inflicted wounds such as alcohol addiction or things of that nature, they can change the momentum of their addiction to change the momentum is referring to the um, an individual changing the uh, changing the life uh, that was once spiraling out of control, and so when when we talk about that, I, I want to uh, I want to ask this question: How why do people 
why do people drink? Why do people engage or use alcohol uh, to begin with? Well, for the context of our society in the United States, it's uh, it's very much glamorized and glorified. So, uh, and and it, uh, I mean, uh, we can take it down to to, to even uh, pre-adulthood, if you will. I mean, it's uh, uh, when you're going into uh, high school and you're looking forward to college. Uh, uh, you see this picture in this uh, presentation of partying and having fun and doing those things with uh, with uh, other individuals, your your peers, and uh, uh, it seems very uh, alluring and acceptable and and something that uh, you want to be a part of. Uh, and you know, I mean, we as individuals, uh, we love to be a part of something, whether it's a team or or, or whatever. And, and alcohol is a way that kind of bridges gaps for those individuals that might not necessarily uh, be able to be a part of of, of something else. So uh, uh, everybody can drink, and everybody can do silly things, and everybody can have fun and goof off. So um, it, it kind of uh, uh, in our society is sold as something that is good and casual and acceptable and normal in society. So we view it that way. I've had this discussion a lot of my life, you know, being a, being a Christian, I think most people fail to realize that, you know, the church is within the culture. And so, uh, you know, inevitably, inevitably you have some of the culture to, uh, come into the, uh, come into the church. So I think about in Genesis uh, 19, 31 through 36, I think their lot uh, was actually made to drink alcohol. And um, it was evidently an intoxicating beverage because his his two daughters made him do it in order for them to have a child with their father. And otherwise, I I guess they both knew that Lot wasn't going to uh, he wasn't going to give in to that had he not you know been under the uh, influence of alcohol. And so I think you're absolutely right. I think most people do, um, especially young people do it for uh, to fit in, to, to be cool. Uh, we had a lot of it in school when I was uh, when I was growing up. And so undoubtedly um, it's still the same today, if not much, uh, much more uh, prevalent in, in today's society. Uh, society. So um, getting a little bit more uh, personal, uh, were you ever introduced to alcohol? And if so, how did it affect you? Um. Well, I mean, growing up, my dad was a heavy drinker, so I, I, alcohol was in my home and around us even when I was small. So um, there are stories that I don't recall where my father said that I went around and, and drank what was left over of people's party glasses, and, and I don't remember that. And then apparently, maybe I even got drunk one time doing that as a little child, so you know, I know that sounds horrific and everybody would uh, claim child abuse and it probably is, but uh, times were different back in the 60s and 70s. So, um, you know, it was just laughed off as, hey, you know, look, well, look at him go and he shouldn't do that. And you better go put those away and and that kind of thing. So, I mean, I was around it my entire life. Now, my dad was very, very, very strict as far as uh, my having the ability to do that by my own free will or choice, it was basically, if you choose to do that, you don't live here anymore. So uh, he could do it, but I couldn't. And that was that delineation of I'm an adult and you're not, you'll live by my rules. When you're an adult, you can do what you want. Unfortunately, it seems to be the double standard that that's found in a lot of homes. The reason why people give into alcohol or something like that is because of a dysfunctional family, maybe. 
Right. And and we I, I do see that a lot in a lot of people that that have alcoholism in in their uh, makeup is uh, they come from very broken families. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mom and dad divorced when I was a year old. They partied together. Uh, my dad was married four times. My mom was married five times. Not much functionality there. And uh, uh, you know, it's uh, uh, if you can't get raised in a good stable environment with good stable foundational rules, then things get very fluid and you start making decisions that generally might not be made. That example of lot that you used was a beautiful example of what happens when you drink, you lose the ability to, to, to uh, be able to make a decision that is rational and something you might normally not do. Right. So, so uh, that, that's a great example of the effects of alcohol. Right. I think, um, um, I heard this quote a while back and the, the guy stated, he said, if, if boys don't learn, then men won't know. And so you, right. gave, you gave the example of, of uh, essentially being introduced to alcohol at a very young age. And even, you know, the unfortunate experience of getting um, intoxicated while a child. Um, right. could, you, could you maybe elaborate as to how um, that affected you growing up, maybe into the adolescent years? Well, you know, I mean, I, I always saw it. So I always uh, assumed it was just part of adult life. Now, I didn't particularly like alcohol because I didn't like what it did to my father. Um, but um, and I didn't drink it, you know, when I was a teenager, I, I was pretty respectful of my parents' rules. Um, but uh, uh, the moment that I was free and I joined the Air Force and shortly after basic training, when I got to my uh, tech school, I think I was there a week and uh, I got uh, very inebriated and uh, uh, drank amounts that probably would make someone extremely sick. And I remember it did make me sick. And but yet I got up and did it again the next day. And I just continued to do that for the whole time I was in tech school. And uh, I couldn't explain to myself why, because I didn't like it. But yet I did like the way it disconnected me from emotion and feeling and, and the regrets that I, I knew and, and had experienced in life. Right. You know, I've actually, um, the example that you just gave, I've actually heard a, uh, a lot of people give the, uh, give the reason as to, for example, uh, they say that, you know, I know that I really don't like drinking. I really don't, don't like what it does to my mind, but, you know, I keep engaging in it for a reason I can't really explain. I can't really offer you a logical explanation as to why I continue to, to drink, you know? And I think um, from my perspective, growing up around um, a family uh, of people who drink and I've seen numerous of family members, young and old, intoxicated, and I've seen them do some dumb stuff just to be frank. And um, ultimately I think that it goes back to another quote I I heard a long time ago. And it talks about human nature and the desire to be fulfilled. And ultimately, the quote goes like, all humans desire to be, you know, fulfilled. And if they lack that fulfillment, then they turn to things like addiction, whether that's addiction to alcohol or pornography or something of, of any enticing substance. And when we understand that we have that, uh, that, that desire to be fulfilled, um, most of, most people do. I think, I think we really do, but we turn to a shallow well, 
to receive something that we're not willing to work to make or to create. And that is that fulfillment I think many people lack. And maybe that's why uh, they turn to uh, alcohol. So most people talk about uh, alcohol abuse. And in fact, I think um, I can't remember the the uh, the company or the organization that released uh, the statistic. I think it might have been the World Health Organization. But um, they, they said that it is estimated, according to research, that 15.1 million or around that number of young adults age 18 and older to around 25 or 27 are addicted to alcohol. And so I just want to talk about that a little bit. Why, why is alcohol uh, so addictive and, and what does it mean to be addicted to alcohol? Well, uh, uh, just the, the terminology, uh, terminology of addiction uh, indicates that someone has uh, uh, a compulsive behavior to uh, uh, want to uh, use whatever substance it may be, be it alcohol or drugs or, or gambling or whatever it is, um, uh, without control. Uh, right. So uh, uh, they, uh, I, you know, when, when I would drink, um, it was there was no shutoff switch. I didn't really want to ever stop. So um, it always led to uh, getting too much in my system. Um, same thing with drugs, you know, although with drugs, it's a little bit different scenario because drugs, you generally are completely uh, intoxicated the moment you take the drug. Whereas with alcohol, there are limits that you can consume alcohol where the intoxication is extremely minor and you still can keep your wits about you. But um, uh, the, uh, the term addiction, I mean, as far as why do people get addicted? Well, scientific studies could say that it could be, have something to do with heredity. My mom and dad were both alcoholics. So, uh, the propensity for me to become an alcoholic, uh, statistically was much higher. The, the, the household that I grew up in being very broken, my dad going through, uh, so many wives and stuff, you know, it really, it affected me. Uh, it affected my view of what marriage was. And, if, and I, and I had conflict because I had my grandma and grandpa who were very religious and very picturesque as far as what scripture says you should be and how you should live. And, and I've got my dad who's doing this certain things and my, my mom doing her things. And, and uh, it was very confusing to me and it caused a lot of uh, grief and pain in my life. And you know, understanding uh, when my separation happened from my maternal mom, uh, the, the things that went with that and, and uh, the, the lack of control I had in that, never being able to, I didn't meet my real mom until I was 16. Yeah. So um, uh, I knew she existed, but I just, I just never got to, to meet her. And then, you know, finding out why I had uh, went with my dad was hurtful. So all of those things uh, cause... Uh, individuals uh, to cope with things differently and I had all these stressors coming on in my mind and things that uh, what I've seen consistently with alcoholics and with drug addicts is pain is something and it sounds very weird because when you look at their life it is nothing but pain right. but pain is something they absolutely do not want to deal with or tolerate so they will go to their drug or their drink and numb that pain very quickly they don't like stress. They don't like conflict. They don't like pain. They don't want anything that upsets calmness. And pretty much the world we live in is, is really built to not be calm. 
I mean, we deal with stressors every day, everything we watch, everything we do, the things we have to produce at work, how we have to, to be in society, the rules we have to follow. All of those things put pressure on us as human beings to be a certain way. Alcoholics and, and uh, uh, drug addicts uh, don't fit that form. They don't like to be confined. They hate rules. They hate being told what to do. They hate being uh, uh, constricted or, or, or confined to anything. Um, most of them will tell you they don't like speed limits. They don't like speed laws. They don't like traffic laws. They don't like any kind of thing that tells them what they need to do. They want to be able to choose for themselves. And unfortunately, most addicts are very poor choice choosers at, at choosing things. Right. I think um, in my mind, I think really the answer to this particular question really gives the answer as to why people uh, continue to drink even when you know, they face, uh, they're faced with the harm that it, that it causes. Um, you right. just alluded to um, alcoholics uh, and, and people who are addicted to other substances, not liking to feel pain. And so right. from a, I guess, you know, kind of off the cuff here, but from a man's perspective, um, you know, men want to be providers. They want to be presiders and protectors of the family. Um, right. I've heard some very um, inspirational and at the same time, sad stories of men who have uh, maybe failed in that area. And so, I mean, I guess what what sense of that can you contribute to pride and what sense of that can you contribute to, I guess, just a just cop a cop out and just wanting to do something to get away from the responsibility? Well, I mean, a lot, uh, a lot of it is also when I say you don't want to feel pain, maybe I should qualify that with you don't want to feel failure. Failure is pain. Right. Um, and, and young men, you know, they want to be successful. They want to be accomplished. They want to be someone who is looked at as, as uh, having ability to thrive and survive in society. And what you find in a lot of uh, addicts is uh, there's something broken there. Um, they don't just, they just quite, can't quite figure out how to plug themselves into society and be accepted correctly. And, and what's funny is most, uh, most individuals that I meet that have addictive personalities are very bright, brilliant people. They, they're very smart. They're very, they, they, they really have great perception on things, but they have horrible self-esteem. Any tiny thing will destroy them. And so that, that probably leads back to what you're talking about is uh, that a sense of accomplishment my view of what is accomplishment may be very different than what you see in me as accomplishment. Right. The hardest person in the world on me is me. Right. And the tiniest thing can make me feel like I am worthless. That's true. And, and that's not, that's kind of broken when you compare it to normal society, um, normal society, you know, you make a mistake. You're like, Oh, so what if I make a mistake, I'll beat myself up for sometimes hours on it. And, and that's, uh, that's very, very common with, with uh, people who uh, suffer from addiction. Low self-esteem. Yeah, true. I think, um, in fact, that's, uh, that too is a very prevalent issue in young people. Um, I gave, um, I was privileged to, to preach one Sunday about self-esteem and uh, the, even the, uh, the issues that I dealt with growing up with low self-esteem. And a lot of that, just again, speaking from a guy's perspective, uh, you don't one thing that I, I hated to be, you know, uh, compared to or classified as was, you know, a, a weak individual. Uh, we used to say punk back in the day or, you know, anything that just deemed you to be less of a 
uh, man or, you know, what a man's supposed to be. And um, essentially that will cause you to uh, turn to something that's, you know, less than ideal. And for me, um, I never turned to alcohol, but for me, my addiction was pornography. I would turn to that to soothe the uh, the the fragile ego that I had at the time, you know, to soothe those pains and wounds that I had suffered, you know, maybe from people that I thought were the ideal, you know, teenager or ideal, you know, uh, young man. And, you know, I just wanted to be essentially like them to try to to try to uh, essentially uh, uh, shape myself in, in their fashion. But ultimately that led to uh, discouragement for me and turning to that addiction. And it's sort of, I guess what I can ask next, uh, the question I can ask next is this, when, even when I tried many times, I failed, I'm just going to be honest. I've, I failed uh, when trying to overcome pornography. Even now I tell my wife, you know, about the images that I would have just pop in my mind out of nowhere. And I have a, uh, I have an app called covenant eyes that I still am ascribed to after years, you know, because it's something that I don't take lightly It's something that I don't want to ever get, give, uh, give back in or give in to again. And so when you talk about, when we think about relapse, as far as the, in the context of our conversation, whenever, sure. whenever relapse happened, it happened to me a lot with pornography, but for alcoholics, when, when sure. is that common? And if so, how should we view relapse? Uh, for someone who's a, 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 an addict, uh, when they're first uh, attempting to try to walk away from that addiction and try to manage it and be normal again, if you will, uh, normal is kind of a, an odd word addicts use because we don't see ourselves as normal in society. We see ourselves as misfits uh, living in a normal society, and, and we have to conform so that we appear normal. Right. Um, we feel, uh, uh, I, you know, I always feel like uh, from the addiction, that piece of me is broken. And I live with that. And I accept that because that's just a weakness in me. Everyone has flaws. Right. I deal with that flaw. So as far as a, a relapse, absolutely. Relapse happens can very, I've yet to meet someone who didn't relapse. Um, when I first decided I was going to stop drinking, it was six years later before I really stopped drinking. I, I flirted with it. I tried to control it, um, but it failed. It was miserable. As a matter of fact, I was more miserable during those six years than I was when I was fully drinking. Wow. That's interesting, man. Okay. So um, it's, uh, it's uh, and, and you'll hear that story many, many times with drug and, and alcohol addicts is that, uh, uh, when they're uh, going through their attempts to try to get their lives straight and, and walk away from their addiction, uh, they'll go through those relapse stages. And if they don't have a plan, if they don't have a focus, if they don't have uh, something to guide them through that, that uh, then uh, it's really not comfortable. Right, right. You have to think, of, if, if I'm the one who was drinking and choosing to go drink. And I put myself in charge of being the one who shouldn't drink. Right. That's like giving the wolf, the key to the, the shed where all the chickens are. Right. Right. I mean, ultimately leading to your own demise at, at, at any right. rate. Yeah, that's true. I mean, that's a great example. I think uh, so essentially I, I guess that when, when relapse does happen, um, a person can, I mean, obviously you get to choose how you view it. It's up to your discretion ultimately. Um, but I guess what would happen, um, 
can it be viewed in such a way that would ultimately cause a person to stay subjected to alcoholism versus helping them to overcome it altogether? You're talking about the relapse as uh, right. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, they, when, uh, when we, uh, when I, when I uh, talk with individuals who uh, have addiction uh, and I know that uh, as a matter of fact, there's a young man that I was uh, helping uh, for a couple, three, four weeks and he hasn't come back and I know he's relapsed. Um, okay. And uh, uh, there's nothing I can do for him. Uh, it's, it's a free will choice for that individual. Uh, one of the things, uh, as, as far as the programs, when I work with uh, the 12 step programs with individuals, uh, one of the things that we tell them is if you want what we have to offer and you're willing to do the steps, then this is for you. So it's complete free will. You have to say, I want it, and you have to want it bad enough to actually put yourself in it right so uh we get people that relapse but they come right back and that's okay we understand that and that's normal because we're human and, and human beings stumble from time to time i'm sure with with uh, your issue you didn't walk away from it cold turkey right off the gate you there no. you struggled with it for a little while and then eventually you got the tools in place and figured out where the authority came from for you to be able to beat that so right and I think ultimately that's sort of uh, where I want to go next. People often allude to uh, uh, the symptoms and the issues that come along with withdrawal. And as you just stated, I guess um, the symptoms can be a little bit more severe when you stop, you know, cold turkey versus taking the process to or taking the time to uh, trust the process to get over a situation. And so uh, one of the questions that I thought were uh, pretty uh I've never heard it before. I thought it was interesting. Uh, one uh, one young person said this to me, like, so if withdrawal is so bad and the symptoms of it are, are so severe, um, shouldn't you be encouraging me to drink instead of stop drinking altogether? And I, I guess like, <laughs> how do you, how would you answer that? I mean, that's, that, that sort of took me by surprise. <laughs> well, as, as I, as I alluded to earlier uh, with, with someone who's in, in an addictive nature, um, you can't, tell them they wouldn't understand, well, maybe you should wean yourself off because there's no limit. There's no understanding of I can have one. There's a thought in the head that one is what I'm going to do. But once you have one as an addict, then it's always, where's the next one? How do I get the next one? How do I, how do I achieve more? Where's more for me? Um, and it is true with, with addiction when, when someone is having withdrawals, depending on the depth of their uh, uh, addiction, because with alcoholism, you can be so um, saturated with alcohol that your body becomes completely dependent on it. Right. And uh, uh, at that point, the doctors will uh, medically and scientifically wean you off of it by uh, allowing smaller doses and smaller doses, because uh, it can actually kill an individual who is very, very deep in uh, alcoholism if they were cut off cold turkey. Um, mm. It's it's odd, but it, it can. And, and uh, the worst thing you could do for someone if you found out that they were a hardcore alcoholic and they were drinking a fifth of vodka every day is to say no more vodka. Their body would shut down. Their body mm. becomes dependent on that vodka. So, so is that where this idea of the shakes come from? Like when you stop cold turkey, 
as far as um, drinking alcohol. Right. When, when you stop, even with, with whether it be drugs or alcohol, your body goes through uh, physical withdrawal, which basically uh, uh, it's wanting that chemical, whatever that okay. chemical may be. And, and because it's not getting that chemical, it reacts in a certain way. It, uh, an alcoholic or, or a drug addict has trained their mind and actually mapped the, the, the neurological pathways in their mind to achieve getting drunk, achieve getting high. And that's what their mind continually wants. And in reaction, as, as more chemicals are put in your body and more alcohol is put in your body, your body becomes dependent on those chemicals and alcohol. And uh, uh, it's not just a mental dependency, it is a physical dependency. So when you take that away, it's as if one day you decided you were gonna take water away from your body. Well, pretty soon your body would react to no water it would start treating you and showing you that it's having issues because it's not getting that water. So yes, if you were very, very deep into it, you, you would probably have to have some form of medical detox. And we right. do see that with a lot of, uh, of uh, uh, individuals that are, are uh, hardcore into their addiction is that they have to go to a detox facility, have medical professionals help them through that detoxification. And then they start working their lives through a program that can get them in the right place. It's, okay. Okay. it's physical first, then work on the mental. Oh, okay. See, that's interesting. I never heard of it being put in that particular order before. And I think, I think that's where a lot of my confusion came from. Um, um, interestingly, when you were talking, I thought about uh, this particular question. Is it the same as far as, uh, so for example, can a, is it quicker for a young person to become intoxicated um, by alcohol than it is for an adult person? And if so, how long would the withdrawal process be uh, for that particular young person? Well, I mean, if we're talking just being drunk one time, uh, the, the, uh, what would happen with a, an individual is uh, you, you've seen the statistics and there are charts out there that uh, the government puts out that you can have, you can consume so much alcohol per body weight and keep yourself maintaining in what is considered a legally sober state. Um, uh, what you see in the difference between uh, uh, a novice drinker and, and someone who's a seasoned drinker is they both get drunk. The seasoned drinker has done it enough that he can mask it. You don't see the drunkness in them as much. Mm. Um, it still will manifest itself. It's just that they're very much better at making you not believe they're as drunk as they are. Right, you right. know, your body learns how to deal with imbalance and dizziness and confusion. If it's done to it enough, it will learn how to, to, to cope and, and navigate through that. Right. Not necessarily well, and not necessarily in a way that's, that's productive, but it will do it. Now, uh, withdrawal, it, it, when the first time that I got drunk, when I was a, a, a young man, I was 19 and uh, uh, I drank a very large amount of alcohol. And that next day, um, it was, uh, I don't know what the, the word to describe it was. I was sick, so sick. I had never been that sick. I didn't understand why I was so sick. Alcohol is a poison. Right. It, it really is. I mean, <clears throat> your body can take tiny amounts of it. And like anything else, a tiny amount of something can be medicinal, but a large amount of it can definitely harm you. Right. So uh, it's, uh, it, was, it was a very horrible thing, but my mind, because uh, I was, had an addictive nature that I didn't know, 
immediately wanted to do it again. Once I felt slightly better, I wanted to go do it again, knowing good and well what it did to me. Right. Now, a sane person and a rational person would go, I, I don't, you know, you get punched. You don't want to walk into a place where you're going to get punched again. My mind said, let's go get punched again. Right. You know, that's, that's it? Inter- <laughs> it's interesting that you gave that example. It makes me, uh, it makes me think of, I think, uh, Proverbs 23, uh, when it talks about, I think it's Proverbs 23, 21 and following when it talks about the, uh, the person who, you know, gives in into alcohol and they, they become drunk, the redness of alcohol, their eyes become red and they eventually, you know, um, you know, fall out because of uh, drunkenness. And then they awake from that feeling, you know, sick and horrible just to go back and say, okay, I have another, you know, it's interesting because of the, uh, you see the poison that it has done to your body, but you go back to it. And I, I don't know. I just guess that's something that, uh, that baffles the minds of, uh, of most people anyway. It does. You know, you were talking about Proverbs 23, 31, 32 says, do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly at the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Mm. And that's a beautiful, beautiful analogy of what alcohol looks so good. It looks so tempting and so enticing in that glass. And in some instances, it actually tastes good if you have the right kind of wine or something that your palate likes. But in the end, it's going to it's going to bite you. All right. So again, I, again, um, you know, you and I being Christians, I, I know that you and I have a different take and perspective on um, alcohol than, you know, say the world. And um, I guess in my mind, I, I just I don't think that alcohol is a sin. I just I don't believe alcohol itself is sinful. Um, right. As you stated before, you know, the, the small amount of anything, um, especially of, of that nature, can be used for uh, medicinal right. purposes. Um, so I kind of think of, again, going back to Proverbs, Proverbs 20 and verse one, uh, wine is a mocker, intoxicating drink, a brawler, and whoever is intoxicated uh, by it is not wise. And so uh, I'm, I'm going to this question as, uh, is it possible to drink responsibly? And when I think about that, I guess going back to Proverbs 20 and verse one, when you consider the person who uh, gives into alcohol and that person being classified as a as unwise, um, it, it's evident, you know, that God instructs us not to get drunk. OK, that's Ephesians 518. Um, he, in fact, encourages sober mindedness. Uh, we are to be sobered, according to first Peter four. And, right. you know, the same is true regarding um, that the Bible warns against, you know, the consumption of alcohol. It warns more against that than it does encouraging the consumption of alcohol. Sure. But I find the same to be true regarding money. Right. So first right. Timothy six and verse 10, um, money is is uh, is called uh, or money is not classified as evil itself necessarily, but the love of it is evil. And so right. the difference there to me is alcohol or money is not called evil itself. The, that right. particular item is not called evil, but the love of that item is evil. And so I can. Essentially, that, that tells me I can use it responsibly, but there's a way I can't. Sure. Alcohol, on the other hand, is actually uh, personified as a mocker. So essentially, I think of this person that's like, you know, they promise you everything, but they deliver in nothing and they stand behind you or stand beside you once you fall in for their tricks and say, aha, I got you. And right. so I guess my mind kind of wonders about the question. I've seen the commercials and. Just wondering what your take is on it. You know, is it possible to drink responsibly? Um, if so, I mean, how do you do that? 
Well, I mean, I, I think uh, I think God gives us free will. Right. I think that uh, that alcohol is there uh, to take or leave. Um, we do see uh, indications in Scripture. I mean, Jesus's first miracle was to turn water into wine at Cana at a party where they were consuming what was probably alcohol laced uh, wine. Now, given historically, we do understand that wine. Uh, at that time had a lot lower alcohol content than what we see in a lot of the things we see today. But uh, nevertheless, it was that we do see in indications in, in the New Testament of advice of taking a little wine uh, uh, for uh, medicinal purpose purposes. Um, we do see that uh, sometimes in, in scripture that uh, wine is indicated uh, as uh, merriment, uh, having a, a nice time. So uh, can you drink responsibly? I think that I think that uh, uh, you could. The danger is, do you know if you're that addict or not? Um, I think that an individual, uh, and I do know individuals that do that, that they absolutely detest being drunk. They they right. they know their limits. They will stop when they when they've reached uh, what they've determined is their limit, um, uh, and they they are what I consider very responsible drinkers. Right. Um, and uh, uh, they uh, don't in, encourage others to, to drink or drink more. They're not irresponsible that way either. So the responsibility with drinking and being a responsible drinker doesn't just come with what I do with the alcohol. It is also how I project the use of that alcohol and how I encourage others around me that are, are used to that alcohol. Um, they don't, you know, when someone is drinking around me, they don't know my history. Right. So as, a, you know, as a, as, as a Gentile, if you will, out in the world, they, that's not so much a big deal for them to worry about because they figure we're all big boys and we'll all just figure it all out. You know, you're responsible for you and I'm responsible for me. Well, as a Christian, we have uh, mandates that are a little bit different than that. I do need to kind of be careful how I behave and how I act around other Christian individuals so that I don't project a sinful or wrongful nature to them or I don't encourage them or entice them to do something that might be sinful. Right. Um, so being responsible uh, has a lot more weight than just can I drink and not get drunk? It's can I drink and not affect someone wrongly? Can I drink and not tempt someone in a wrongful way? Can I drink and, and understand that who I'm drinking around, it's safe to do so? Uh, is my maturity level in my Christianity at a place where uh, I understand that and is the individual around me at a maturity level where they can understand that if they see me have a drink, it's okay. Mm -hmm. uh, so you got to know who you're with. You've got to understand where they're at in their walk and you've got to understand where they are uh, as an individual, whether or not they've had issues like I had in my life. So it all boils down to what we, we know as Christians as um, if I'm going to do something around you, I probably should know you. And I probably should know you intimately in the sense that I know all your ins and outs and know your weaknesses and I know your strengths so that if I choose to do something, I know that it won't affect you in a, in a, a harmful way, but it will encourage you and uplift you. Um, so that's, you know, from our perspective as a Christian, that's the way that I look at it. Um, the other side, the flip side, when I, when I do the 12 step with a lot of individuals who aren't Christian, my heart says, I just don't want them to be in that dark place. Cause I've been there. Right. It hurts. It hurts to see one. And I'm talking about people in, in that, that have done this with me that are not Christians. They feel the exact same way. They don't want to see another human being suffer and go through that. 
because right. they know what they know what it feels like. Right. And I, I like I like the uh, the example that you gave and, and really just clarifying the question itself. Uh, responsibility is much more. It has a broader um, uh, has a broader, I guess, uh, range. You have to make sure not only, you know, are you affecting yourself, but are you affecting someone else? Are you doing or bringing harm to someone else? Um, I think in my mind, you know, I don't know whether the chemical properties and say Listerine are totally different than the chemical properties and, you know, maybe a bottle of vodka, you know, I do know that Listerine has some um, alcoholic properties in it, you know, and whether you drink it and actually swallow the Listerine or not, it touches your tongue, which causes you to thereby consume uh, some of that Listerine into your, uh, into the glands on your tongue. And so in my mind, it, it has always kind of, you know, troubled me to the, to the extent as to uh, say, if I get a question from um, a young, a young adult, which I have, by the way, you know, right. how do I know, um, you know, can, can I drink? Would you advise me to drink? Can I, you know, if I'm to drink responsibly, how can I know what's my limit if I don't get drunk the first time, you know, all of those yeah. things kind of, you know, they, they began to surface in, um, again, as a Christian, having a different perspective than the world, having the Bible as our ultimate authority, it's like, how do you, I don't know, how, how do you navigate that, you know, question and, and sort of, you know, give them a, a, a answer that is uh, sufficient, you know? Right. Well, I mean, uh, number one is you sit down and you, uh, uh, with anything that you do, whether it's going to be uh, exercise, whether it's going to be drinking alcohol, whether it's going to be doing uh, something different, getting a new job, you should prepare yourself. Right. So you should go out and get get the facts on what alcohol is, how the al- what alcohol effects will happen to your body as you consume alcohol, uh, what are safe limits to consume with alcohol. Um, I would tell someone that if they were going to experiment with that and, and they wanted to uh, do it responsibly, uh, do it with someone who is mature and themselves are very responsible. Uh, don't uh, put yourself in a position of being around peers that might throw peer pressure at you to do something you shouldn't do. Um, Because once you consume one or two drinks, your mind starts changing in the way that it behaves and the way that it may uh, react to uh, peer pressure, the way it may react to uh, uh, enticement, those kind of things. So you should probably be around someone uh, who, uh, uh, or a group of people who also are very responsible and would be, uh, accountable part, uh, an accountable partner for you that would be able to say, Hey, we've had enough. And, right. and this, and, you know, it, it's just like driving. You don't jump in a car as a young teenager and drive by yourself. You get someone responsible to kind of guide you through the rules and the navigation of driving. If you chose to, to, to put alcohol in your life and you wanted it to be a part of your life and you wanted it to be something you did responsibly, then do the same thing. Get someone who's responsible, someone who understands uh, what the rules are and how to navigate that and, and, and do it in your life that is going to be something that uh, won't uh, deter you from, from your, uh, your walk. Right. And I, I think um, you're absolutely right. I think, uh, um, in my perspective, I sort of I just ultimately agree with how you said that you answer uh, those who attend, you know, the AA meeting that you host. Um, you don't want them to have to deal with that suffering. And right. me and the experience that I've had, you know, with my family members and uh, just various friends, um, it seems to me that 
and from my perspective, you know, drinking, um, how do you drink alcohol responsibly? To me, it's not drinking it at all. I mean, I, I wouldn't, you know, say drink alcohol, but to some people is, well, I'm doing it in the comfort of my home, you know? Right. I mean, can I necessarily tell this guy or woman, you know, what he or she cannot do or can do within the comfort of their home and they're not going out then, Technically, I mean, that is safer than drinking while driving because of the uh, because of the fatality rate, you know, with by, with drunk drivers in this country alone. And so, again, I mean, I, I know that uh, um, this particular topic has been, you know, one of discussion and debatable between uh, Chris or among Christians for centuries. And I think that it's um, it's necessary to look at both sides, um, ultimately to. You know, I can disagree with a person, but I can understand a person and still disagree. I understand them in order to help them, you know, with the particular uh, issue at hand. And so uh, that that sort of leads me into the uh, into the next question. You know, how is there any reason people, I guess, should, you know, should consume alcoholic beverages other than medicinal purpose? I I guess the better, you know, sort of uh, clarify the question is like, is, is there any purpose for, you know, the consumption of alcohol other than, you know, medicinal purposes. Um, obviously we talked about, we talked about, you know, all the things, all the wonderful examples that you gave as right. far as uh, with, with people that attend the AA meetings and, and, um, right. and some people, you know, obviously taking that alcohol because they don't want to feel pain. Pain is a real thing. I mean, we right. can't deny that pain isn't real. And so is that a, is that a, I guess, a logical reason, you know, to consume alcohol other than um, medicinal purpose? I don't know. I mean, but how, how would you answer that? Um, well, no, it's, it's not logical to, to induce yourself into a state where you are, are not, uh, um, you're not uh, sober. I mean, to, to put yourself into a state where you're not rational and you can't make good, rational, clean decisions is not, ra- it, it's not, there's there's no uh, um, there's no thought process that makes that rational, but that's just the point of an addict is they do very irrational things that most individuals who are rational thinkers and aren't uh, prone to to alcoholism or or drug addiction would go that that's absolutely crazy that why would you think that way? But that's just it. They're wired different. Right. So the, the way that they think is is not going to look rational to anyone. And no, it's not the right answer to go get drunk, to hide from your feelings. No, what you find out when you're uh, uh, an alcoholic or, or any type of, of addict is that the way you cure yourself and start living a normal life is you learn how to face and deal with your emotion and feelings. Right. You can't uh, experience life to its fullest if you don't understand all the aspects of life, pain, joy, all of it. Right. And I think that goes back to an example that you gave earlier too. you know, people uh, fear being one of the uh, one of the leading reasons as to why people give in to alcohol. They don't want to feel not only fear, but failure. And so if I feel like a failure, you know, I, I want something to take that away, you know, I, I mean, I don't like feeling like a failure. I'm, I'm sure I'm sure you don't like feeling like a failure. Sure. And when you think about um, uh, young people, um, especially going, you, you know, they're growing up in this tumultuous society. They're trying to, uh, you know, prove something to themselves. They're 
uh, many of them are trying to prove something to their parents. They're trying to please their parents. And it's sort of like, okay, you know, how can I balance all of this? Right. You alluded to stress and being under that intense um, amount of stress each day of our lives. We face it on the way to work. You're driving, you're trying to watch out for other people, especially in the snow. <laughs> and right. you're trying to, you're trying to avoid, you know, an accident and all of those things that you kind of have to balance on a daily basis that uh, no one, uh, no one truly looks at as a, uh, as a uh, logical reason or not even a logical reason, but a, a factor as to why people give into um, alcohol. And so yeah. I think, yeah, I agree. I think um, from my perspective, uh, again, I don't think, I think it, even if you can't decide from using scripture, which I think you can as to whether or not you would drink or not, um, look at the evidence, look at the statistics as to what, you know, alcohol does on a yearly basis in our country alone. You know, the, uh, has wrecked, deaths. right, right. 30,000 plus death. I mean, deaths, it, it has wrecked the lives of, innocent individuals sure. and that's something that alcohol has taken again promising something that it, it don't deliver taking away something that people will never get back like a loved one so and for for all of those individuals that are experiencing that addiction or even maybe that one-time thing that um caused some catastrophic issue someone got drunk didn't really not normally a drunk person went out and drove had a car accident killed four or five people the ripple effect of everyone that that affects around them is monstrous. Most people, you, myself, almost anyone listening to this, this cast will uh, very quickly and easily go, yep, I know an addict or, or an alcoholic. Right. Probably in their own family. That's true. And, and they'll understand the pain. You, you yourself alluded to the pain. Those individuals that you saw that, that did those things in your family, they hurt you too. Right. Because, you know, they did things that made you feel uncomfortable. They made you sad because you saw someone you loved doing something that you knew was harmful, whatever it was. So the ripple effect of, of one individual deciding to abuse or, or misuse a substance is monstrous. The ripple effect in my family alone. I mean, uh, my mom and dad doing those things, me growing up around it, it affected my entire life. It affected my children's lives. It affected a lot of things around me, my friends, it affected who I chose as friends. So right. many people in my life probably would have been someone that I would have admired and, and maybe allowed to mentor me, but because they didn't live my lifestyle, I didn't want anything to do with them. Absolutely. I think um, you alluded to, we, we obviously talked about the um, very real idea of overcoming alcohol. We alluded to uh, the fact that, you know, as to why the reasons that people give as to why they drink alcohol. And we talked about people overcoming that um, addic uh, addiction. And I mean, you yourself is a testament to that. You've overcome, you know, alcoholism. And um, mm -hmm. so then it's, it's very real and it's possible to overcome alcohol addiction. I guess what most people are confused and what I mean by most people, most young adults who have given into alcohol and decided to drink, especially in college, which is so, I mean, there's so much peer pressure in college, on college campuses, right? tailgate parties, uh, frat parties. You, you, I mean, when you go to those, I mean, essentially the booze is at the door. Like you, right. you have to take one or you're going to be classified as this lame individual who came into the party just to drink, you know, water or something like that. Um, these people who, have given into this temptation, I guess now the biggest issue that they face is 
uh, when to get help. How do I get help? When do I get help? Who do I get help from? I, I mean, how do you answer that? Well, I mean, help, help comes in different uh, forms for different people. Um, some people find help uh, uh, by going to a doctor. And a doctor, they, they, they're able to, to mitigate that issue uh, using uh, medical. Um, most things like that generally fail for an addict. Now, someone who isn't necessarily uh, an addict by nature they generally have enough rationale to be able to say, okay, I can look this up. I can find the steps that I need to do what I need to do from an addiction perspective. Usually when they come in the door uh, of a 12 step program, they're broken. They're completely broken. They've hit a place that is as dark and as dismal as anyone could ever imagine. Um, And uh, they, uh, are asking the same question. I don't know how to do this. I don't have the tools to do this. How do I do this? Right. And, and the first thing that we tell them is that, uh, uh, well, number one, you have to understand that uh, uh, this isn't in your control. You don't, uh, you don't, you're not able to control this at all. Obviously, you've proven that by the way you live. Right. You can't make a rational decision to say, I won't do this and stick to it. You always fail. So then number two, the guidance is, okay, if I'm not in control, then how do I do it? Well, you have to surrender that control over to an authority that has the power to actually effectively do something about what your problem is. Right. Um, in, uh, in AA and NA, uh, the, the point is you need to surrender your will and your life over to God. Now, it, depending on uh, whether it's A or NA, they might say the God of your understanding, but it is uh, the indication that you have to surrender your life over to deity that has authority and power to be able to step in and take control of your life and help you m- uh, manage yourself through it using the tools that are available to you through that program. So learning how to wisely work through steps unraveling all of that baggage that's inside of you, learning how to get rid of your, uh, the baggage that is with you and, and uh, uh, learning how to uh, say uh, forgiveness. You have to learn to forgive and be forgiven. You have to learn how to do that. You have to learn how to uh, let go. You have to learn how to say, I'm not in control of that and not let it stress you. You have to learn how to get rid of anger. The reasons people drink are much, much deeper and more complex than just, I can't control the alcohol. There are drivers behind that. Alcohol was the, was the uh, it was what I did to cope with what was going on in my life. Mm-hmm. So I had to figure out what was under there that was causing all those issues. Now for me, um, I was looking, my wife and I were having issues merrily, so I decided... I was not going to lose her and I was willing to do whatever I needed to do. And God was the answer for me. I said, I know God can do this. I know he has authority and power to be able to do this. I know he can get me through it. I don't doubt that one, one bit. I did also understand that there was a part I had to play in that. God had the authority to do it, but I had to submit to that authority. So an alcoholic or an addict of any kind can say, yes, I'll, I'll turn my will and my life over to a God of my understanding until I want another one. So you have to have the willpower to say, no, I'm turning it over. So then accountability comes into, into, into play. So you start putting yourself 
around like-minded individuals, people who want to be clean, who want to be in society, who want to do the right thing, who do not want to use anymore. You get away and disconnect and completely cut off those individuals who were keeping you in that lifestyle. Addicts, alcoholics, uh, drug addicts, they only ever associate with other alcoholics and drug addicts. They don't associate with, with, with regular people because they can't get what they want from them. Hmm, They're not accepted with them. If I go around a bunch of people who don't normally get drunk and they're pretty reasonably responsible people and I get drunk all the time, they're not going to want to be around me and they won't like me and they will judge me. Hmm. So I don't want to be judged. So I'm going to go around people who do the same horrible thing I do. That makes sense. Yeah. And and in that, in that view, when you come into a, a, a 12 step room, the beautiful piece about it is, and I, I like to translate this over when I talk to people uh, in faith uh, at church, is that I, as an alcoholic, have probably done some very, very horrible things. So what you tell me isn't going to shock me. And I'm not going to judge you because I've done just as many bad things as you've done. So I take that and I go to my, my church with it, and I'm the same way. You're not going to tell me a sin that's going to shock me because guess what's went on in this head? It would probably make you gasp. I'm just as evil as any man that ever walked, if not more. So I have no right to judge you, but I will help you. And that's the way they look at it in the rooms of of addiction is I'm just as bad as you are. So I want you to be better and I want to be better. Let's help each other get better. You know, I think that's a fascinating way to look at it because the stigma that's attached to alcohol addiction and other um, addiction uh, substances uh, that people abuse and are addicted to, um, you know, the people who aren't or the people that may not deal with the same sin or issue in their lives. Uh, most of most of those people are quick to say, you know, why are you doing that? Or I don't want anything to do with you. You're such a you know crappy person. Right. And, you know, I just I'm just I'm just going to avoid you. And I think you know, how can you win souls with that? How can you help people if you're not willing to, you know, hear them out and um, at least trying to uh, sympathize with the issue uh, that they're facing? You can't fix Um, someone who doesn't need fixing. If you want to fix someone, you find a broken person and fix them. Exactly. Exactly. I think you you actually stated something that uh, made me think of a, of a quote I heard on one of the podcasts that I love to listen to. And the guy stated that he said, you know, one of the most uh, horrible things that you can do to an individual is to accommodate them in their failures. Right. And it's, I mean, you're essentially holding their hand, leading them to their failures and just dropping them there. Like, Oh, go ahead. Give into, you know, as it relates to our topic, give into alcohol, you know, mm-hmm. go ahead and just hand over your life, hand over your kids, your family, or as it relates to young people, you know, hand over your school, hand over your job, you know, all of those things that we may have going for ourselves. And um, I think that's a pretty, you know, you know, horrible way to, to assist someone uh, rather than taking on that challenge, coming out of our comfort zones and trying to help them, you know, overcome the addiction that they, that they are facing. And, you know, unfortunately we see so much uh, it is loved ones that enable individuals more than anyone else. It's a grandma who loves their grandchildren so bad. They just can't say no. When they say, do you have $10 grandma? Grandma knows good and well where that $10 is going to go but they love that child so dearly. They don't know what else to do. And they're terrified. They'll never see them again if they don't give them the $10. So a lot of our enablers in society, generally people we love. True. That's true. 
you know, it's interesting after, um, I don't know if you ever heard of the, uh, the guy, George Best, he was a, uh, George was a professional uh, soccer player and he was a guy that gave into, uh, um, alcohol and other uh, substances. And he also gave into, uh, sexual promiscuity and things like that. He lived a very, you know, uh, uh, a really chaotic life. Right. I mean, he gave it to the girls and things of, uh, of that nature. And uh, uh, on his deathbed, after alcohol has wrecked his life, his career, he stated these words. He said, do not die like me. The last words he spoke, then he gave up the ghost. Last words he ever spoke, do not die like me. And thankfully, I think the guy that I was talking to you about before we started recording, uh, John Daly, right. he, you know, this professional golf player, um, obviously, uh, one of the considered one of the best as far as his uh, teeing off and um, having one of the best swings in, in, in um, golf history. And, you know, guys pretty much um, admired this guy. You know, people came from all around to see this guy from Arkansas, you know, hit a golf ball. Right. And he was I mean, he was just that famous. But he was off. He was also infam uh, infamously known for his alcohol addiction. Um, 10 years, I, I believe 10 years or so running from, uh, in and out of jail, running from the cops because of, you know, acting out due to being drunk with alcohol four marriages, three of them ending in divorce and, you know, had a gambling issue, you know, $1.7 million, I believe it was right. that he owed in, in, in debt as far as gambling goes and lost his, uh, his endorsements with Callaway golf. And so, I mean, the guy's life was spiraling out of control. Right. And, you know, the, the, the wonderful thing that you stated that I really loved is that you have to have it in your mind that you, obviously you, you can't handle this, but you need to surround yourself with people that can help you surrender it, surrender that over to someone, to a being, obviously for you and I, that's God, surrender that over to God who can help you. And I don't know if John, maybe, you know, I don't know if he um, ascribes to Christianity or not, but I do know that the guy uh, went to AA meetings, right. NA meeting, and essentially, you know, got his life back together, returned in 2014, I think, right. uh, back to the, uh, the, the world of golf. And now he's doing good, man. He's doing better. And obviously it's because of what you stated earlier, you have to make up your mind to, uh, to, to that you're going to let, you're going to let, you know, alcohol go and uh, do what's best for your life. Exactly. And I mean, and whatever he did, they, they taught him the tools that unraveled what was causing him to want to drink. Uh, right. You know, I, like I said before, you know, most of the addicts that I, I come in contact with come from very, very, very broken backgrounds, very, very bad childhoods, very uh, uh, bad relationships, just uh, uh, very low self-esteem, very, uh, very unconfident and unsure of anything they do. Uh, and they don't like that. No one likes to look in the mirror and say, I'm a failure. I, I don't like what I do. I, I can't accomplish anything. So it's easier to go medicate and just be numb. Right. Then you don't think about it. And that's really where, where the drugs and the alcohol come in. It's just a numbing effect. So you don't think about it. All right. You know, I, I think um, as we, as we uh, prepare to close, I, I really appreciate um, obviously your time and, and, and uh, your willingness to, to talk about this issue. But, you know, I think that and, and correct me if I'm wrong. Would you say that the feeling of pain or the feeling of uh, hitting rock bottom or uh, the feeling of, of a loss right. in general, you know, being taken to the most disparaging places that anyone can uh, imagine, being taken to those dark places in your life? Um, 
I think that sometimes that has some benefit. Like you need to be taken there. You need to be broken in order to number one, admit that you're broken. And then number two, get help. Like you're willing to receive help if you admit and acknowledge that, uh, that you're broken. And I'm just willing to bet that there's, you know, there are some people who are listening, you know, to this episode uh, that may, uh, you know, that may still struggle and, and still give in to um, alcohol right. from time to time. And so um, as we, you know, come to a close, I guess, what, what are some practical advice? What are some inspirational words of encouragement that you would, you know, give to those individuals? Sure. Um, uh, you spoke about uh, experiencing pain with, with the, the terminology that's usually used in a group is uh, they hit rock bottom and bottom is different for all people. Sometimes bottom is very horrific when you hear the story and other times bottoms is not as nearly as bad. And you go, wow, that, that didn't take much for that person. They're very lucky. Um, right. So uh, whatever bottom is for someone and, and the flip side of that is sometimes they don't come back from it. Uh, the saying is that if you don't choose to figure out how to fix yourself, the alternative is jails, institutions or death. That's mm-hmm. where your life will go eventually. Um, the upside of that is, is that if, if you do decide that that's uh, an avenue you want to pursue and you want to uh, uh, figure out a way to make yourself uh, more productive uh, and, and get yourself away from uh, the imprisonment of addiction, because basically you're a slave to it. It's just like smoking. Uh, uh, most smokers will tell you, I smoke whenever I want to. No, you smoke because you have to. And that's really the truth of it. Alcoholics, drug addicts are the same way. You know, oh, I, I can go have a beer. Sure you can. And then you're going to have another and another and another because it controls you. You don't control it. And right. When you decide that you want to control it, there are beautiful programs out there. Um, uh, I would always tell someone, you know, uh, try to find a faith-based program. But uh, um, uh, the starting place uh, in the United States for programs that are free for any type of addictions are NA or AA. So you've got Narcotics Anonymous and Alcoholics Anonymous, and those those are very good programs to, to go in and get yourself some education as to uh, the tools that you can use to get yourself moving forward in a way that's going to help you get through your addiction and to a point where you can live a normal, happy, productive life. Um, uh, the indication in, 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 a and AA is that you'll always be an addict. You're either a practicing addict or you're not a practicing addict. So, uh, uh, so, uh, uh, that's not a discouraging thing. It's, you know, that's why you hear so many people say, I have three months clean. I have a year clean. I have five years clean, whatever the, the, the number is, uh, uh, because they, they, they know that they're always an addict. And they have to always be on top of it and always use the tools they've learned to uh, uh, be able to be strong enough to, to keep going. So for me and right. for you, uh, the tools we learn to, to, to mitigate sin and drunkenness is a sin uh, from a scriptural standpoint. Uh, the, the tool that I use to mitigate that is God and God's rule and God's power and authority. Um, I would tell almost anyone, whether you're a believer or not, that you have to submit to authority that's powerful enough to, to, to be able to do something in your life that is going to be able to change the way you behave. You, you don't generally have the power to do that because you've shown through his, history that you make bad decisions and it just doesn't work. 
I've met so many people that have tried and tried and tried to do this by themselves and they fail every single time. Uh, if you want it, you can have it. If you want to be uh, uh, sober and you don't want to deal with those issues anymore, it's out there waiting for you. You have to have the strength to say, I'll commit to it and understand that you don't have control over it and that you're going to give the control to, to uh, something that is more powerful than you. Um, and you're going to be changing who you hang out with. You're going to be changing the way you live. Um, I haven't been drunk in a long, long time. And guess what? I have a great life. I'm happy. You know what? I don't wake up feeling horrible anymore. And if I do, it's because I worked too hard the day before. I shoveled a lot, <laughs> a lot of snow today and I'm going to be sore tomorrow. But you know what? That's 10 oh, better yeah. than being hungover. So yes, sir. It's, a, it's, it's a perspective thing. You know, do you want to have a relationship with your loved ones? Do you want to have uh, uh, a good job? Do you want to, to be able to uh, pay your bills and pay your taxes and do all those things that we all grunt about and smile doing it? Well, the way you do that is you get yourself into a state of mind that says, I'm happy, I'm productive. I'm not in control and I'm not a, I'm, I'm not a slave to something that will bring me into a dark place anymore. Absolutely. I think, um, Lee, I just, I just want to tell you, I appreciate you so much for uh, sharing your own personal story, the, the practical advice, the scripture with us, the spiritual advice. Um, I just know that, you know, this has not only been inspirational for me, but for those who uh, will listen to this, uh, this episode, um, hopefully their lives will be impacted in a positive way, you know, um, and, and their endeavor to overcome um, alcoholism and uh, the great pains that that come with that. Um, but before we before we leave, I, I just I know that you host a, um, a AA meeting and the, in a right. meeting. Sorry, uh, there may be. Um, and I know there may be some in the area who uh, uh, are listening sure. Um I guess, can you give them a little bit of information about that and, you know, the time and the place and things like that? Absolutely. Uh, uh, we do an NA meeting every Monday night at six o'clock at uh, the Bellevue Church of Christ on Madison Street, two blocks uh, uh, south of Dairy Queen off of Mission Avenue. Um, so it's in Old Town Bellevue. Um, you can go on to uh, the, the uh, Nebraska NA site and uh, uh Eastern Nebraska uh, Narcotics Anonymous site, and there's a listing of, of different meetings that are available for that. Same thing with uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. You can go on the AA site for Nebraska, and there's always a listing of meetings. I believe the church catty corner from us does AA meetings on, I want to say Tuesday nights or Wednesdays, but they do do them. Okay. So um, either way, what I would tell anyone who's listening out there, if you're struggling with this, if you're afraid to come forward with this, uh, uh, you can absolutely reach out to me through Daniel and I will talk to you. I will not judge you. Uh, I have no right or reason to want to do that, but I will help you. Uh, and if you want it and, and you truly uh, are committed to it, you can have it. Absolutely. Hey, Lee, I thank you so much, man, for, for giving me and giving us your time. And uh, please tell Michelle that we're thankful that she allowed you to do this conversation with us. And uh, uh, thank thank her for allowing us to have some of her time with you uh, tonight. Absolutely. And um, uh, whenever and if those um, individuals choose to reach out through me, I'll definitely get in contact with you and let you know. Sounds good. So, yes, sir. So thank you, man. And I hope you have a good night. Yep, thank you. You too.
Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode. I hope that the practical knowledge, the biblical verses that were shared um, aid you in your ability to overcome alcohol addiction or to help you uh, or to help prevent you from ever becoming addicted to alcohol. Please, again, subscribe to the podcast, leave a review. Uh, Let me know what you thought about the episode. That way we can be able to put out more helpful material as we strive to share practical stories for practical living.